<laughs> I see more heads going like this than like that when I ask the question, are you ready to go home? I'm ready to go home. Actually, I'm ready for a few days off, which I'm going to have after the retreat ends, just until Sunday. Um, it seems like a long retreat. Eight days, long time. Many Dharma talks, much instruction. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. I remember I used to, when I, when I was a young man, <laughs> I used to teach three-month retreats. I taught three of them. And after teaching a three-month retreat, uh, you know, nine-day or ten-day retreat seemed like nothing. You know, I mean, it would just go right on by. But um, I guess when you get older, <laughs> everything seems to go a little bit, you know. Uh, slower, it's a little bit more difficult, whatever. Not that the, teaching a three-month retreat was something easy, not by any means. Um, but I think that these retreats are very, very worthwhile, and um, that's why we have them. And uh, there is a lot of energy expended, but it's uh, it's a real use for for us to have these. And last evening. Uh, in our discussion, in our group discussion, we started talking some about long-enduring mind. People talking about the depressions that they have and some of the suffering that seems to go on for a while, you know, getting caught in some patterns of, of fear, negativity, unworthiness, jealousy, whatever, that lasts a long period of time. And um, as some people were expressing that, other people were expressing more kind of short-term acute suffering that they were experiencing during the course of the retreat, or at least that's what we, you were telling me when you were coming in for interviews. And whether it, you know, whether it be the long, enduring kind of suffering that lasts over years, years and years, or whether it's something which comes up very intensely um, for a week during the course of a meditation retreat, it's still dukkha. You know, it's still, it's still difficult to, to go through, but seems to be part of um, a process of that many of us have to go through to, in, in, in coming to deeper wisdom and compassion uh, in our lives. And I understand this kind of long, enduring mind pretty well. I, my father, when I was two years old, I have a, a sister who's two years older than me and a brother who's a year younger. When I was two years old, um, my father, he was prone to nervous breakdowns. And he was having a nervous breakdown, and he was also going blind at the same time. So he was in the hospital not wanting to be with, not wanting to meet his family because the doctor said that he was going blind. He, didn't go, he actually didn't go blind until later on in his life, but they said he was going to go blind. And he had had a series of nervous breakdowns. And in those days, they gave you electric shock treatments. for If you were depressed, they didn't have medications that, you know, Prozac, things like that, they used to hook you up, give you electric shock treatments, which is what he used to have, and he'd be in the hospital for a while, and he'd come home, and 
Sometimes you'd be able to be home, sometimes you'd be in the hospital. And as a, as a young baby, when that was happening, I knew th that there was something wrong uh, happening, but all I know is that my mother didn't want me to be on her lap, and that she was holding my brother, and I was kind of getting brushed away. And this is a kind of pattern that lasted for a number of years, where I felt this kind of distance from my mother, a separation from my mother where I was not, um, where I, I was not getting the sense of connection and nurturance. And, um, and it was only after my father began to get better and recognize that I was feeling left out that I bonded very deeply with my father. But I have always felt a separation from my mother. And so, like when I do that Durga chant that, that one evening or one morning, I did that chant to, to Durga, to the Divine Mother. And when I used to do that chant, I used to feel such deep pain in my heart because of the separation from the mother. And so I could always, through the years, whenever I do that chant, I could always tell kind of how much healing had taken place with my mother as to how I would sing the chant. You know, was there like despair and agony in that chant? Was there a sense of real separation and pain? Or was there a sense of opening my heart more to the Divine Mother and feeling more connectedness and joy and peace and beauty, which is really what that chant is about. That's the essence of what that chant is about. It's, it's just feeling the connection and the love and the compassion and the joy of the Divine Mother and letting that th flow through you. So it was, um, uh, at an early age, I started experiencing a lot of unworthiness that just kind of carried on into adolescence. And when the hormones started kicking in, um, and I realized, I thought I was gay because I was attracted to men, older men. And there was a lot of acting out of my sexuality. And I just felt terrible about myself, just very, very deep unworthiness, self-hatred. And of course then, I mean, this is in the 50s, this is in the, well, the early 60s, there was no such thing as gay then. The first time I heard gay was when I was hitchhiking out in California, in Southern California, in Los Angeles, and I, everything had gotten stolen. Everything that I owned had gotten stolen. I was walking down the streets. I didn't have a, even a wallet with identification in it. And this guy in a little yellow um, uh, Volkswagen drives up. And, and as, I'm, as I'm walking down the, down the street, I guess I look desperate. And he stops next to me, and he rolls down the window, and he says, Hi, my name is Jay, and I'm gay. <laughs> that was the first time that I had heard you know, the word gay. I'd never heard it before. So I'm like, okay, I think I know what this means. You know? um, but like, through my adolescence, it was just a, just a lot of judgment of myself and hatred of myself and anger at myself, loathing at myself, you know, and just really thinking that I would never, ever be happy, that I'd never find any peace, that my life was ruined. It was just ruined. I'd never, I'd never be happy. That's kind of a lot to face when you're like 17 years old, 16, 15, 15, 16, 17 years old. It's like, there's not, the, the future does not look very bright, you know? And so the way that I would try to compensate for that deep sense of unworthiness was by 
being an athlete and playing sports and being good at that. And that was a way of receiving acceptance from other people. That if I was good at that and people liked that, then, you know, then I was okay. Then I was worthy. Um, but it didn't really get to very deeply to the sense of, of judgment and, and self-hatred. And it's really what drove me into monasticism. It's what drove me into the monastery. It's really what, you know, I realized I had to find something that was going to address the deep pain and despair that I was feeling. I was getting to the point where I was just doing a lot of drugs and was sleeping a lot and, you know, just and pretty depressed. Um, uh, and, you know, feeling like there was no way out of this. And so when I met Buddhism, it was like either it's this or nothing is really what it came down to. Either this works or forget it. You know, this, this is it. And when I first started practicing, uh, a lot of fear, a lot of negativity, a lot of um, anger, judgment started to arise uh, at myself and the people around me. And it, it came up extremely intensely. It, and the kind of practice there was not we're, like we're doing a meditation retreat, everybody together, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, teacher giving, you know, talks, interviews like we do. It's more, it's in this particular place, people were practicing together, but um, it was more like you were left on your own also to do as much practice as you wanted to or not. And there was not a lot of instruction given that I could really understand. You were really left a lot on your own. So a lot of this was coming up very, very strongly. And I didn't know what to do with it. And, you know, I just kept saying, well, I'll just push harder in the practice. I'll push more, you know. I'll just go deeper into it, you know, kind of pushing and forcing, doing more and more meditation. And as I did more, it would come up stronger. It was like, I felt like, well, maybe what I need to do is root canal. You know, it's just kind of, just pull it out and get rid of it. You know, that was the attitude. And other Westerners had the same kind of attitude. You know, we kind of reinforced that in each other. It's part of our culture. It has to be. And the way that we go about things is, let's get to it, you know, accomplish what we want to accomplish, and then move on. You know, and, and what was happening with that was I was getting caught in a really self-defeating cycle with it because there's the desire for liberation, there's the desire to be free of the negativity or the greed, the judgment, and, um, and with, when with that desire to be free of it, it would cause the hindrances to become more intense. So there was more restlessness and there was more agitation and there was more negativity, and there was more frustration and more disappointment. So I would kind of feed into the desire system, get fed into the desire system of wanting to be free of it, and in striving to be free of it, but in the wanting and the striving, there, all the, you know, the hindrances, the restlessness, the agitation would come up very strongly, and 
a lot of the negativity and then I would judge myself because I was not experiencing what I thought that I should be experiencing and it would just snowball more and more and more this way. And I was really caught in it and there was nobody to tell me what was happening. I just had to go through it. And it was a painful experience to continue to go through it. But sometimes that's the way that we need to learn is just by being on our own and 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 writing it. Um, there's a, a a poster that has a swami on a surfboard riding the waves, and it says, you know, you can't change the waves, but you can learn how to ride them. You know, and so as best we can, we learn how to ride the waves. But one thing that really helped me was the attitude of the Thais, the Thai monks and the and the nuns and the lay people, because. They were, um, they were much more accepting of Buddhism and Dharma just for what it is. And there was not this heavy idea of wanting to get somewhere in the practice. You know, it's like they were born in a country in which, you know, Buddhism is the state religion and Dharma is always there. And so... To be around it and to practice it is very natural. It's not like something special that we're going to do to get something from, you know. I mean, and there are different sides to this too. You can become very, very complacent in within a religion when it's been around for eons, and you just take it for granted, and you just kind of you're with the trappings, but you don't get to the essence of the teachings because you're just working with it on a superficial level. And that does happen. But what I saw with the Thai people was that certain qualities like, um, like generosity and patience, loving kindness, equanimity, morality, that what they were really, they, they, it was part of their character. You know, it was part of who they were. It wasn't that they were practicing Buddhism in order to get these things, but it was already there. It was already there. And wisdom, too. It was already there. Compassion. It was already there inside of themselves as part of who they were, part of who they are. And, and I noticed that we, we, the Westerners, were different. You know, we were like, come on, let's go and get it, and let's get something out of this. And... and and the, and the Thais would look at us, and, and they'd scratch their head, and they'd say, you, you Westerners are funny, you know? You're, you're different. They weren't quite sure how we were different, but they, they knew that we were different in the sense that we always seemed to be striving and to be really a little bit uptight and pressing, all the time kind of pressing, 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 you know, wanting to get something. And their attitude was, Tamsabai, take it easy. You know, my penrai, it doesn't matter. You know, just relax. You know, don't be so uptight. Just, you know, go on alms run in the morning, get your food, come back, do some meditation. You know, enjoy the day. <laughs> take it easy. You know, enjoy being in Thailand. We love you. You know, um, we'll give you everything that you need. You need some food, you need some robes, we'll give you that. Come on, let's just talk a little bit of Thai. You know, I didn't want to learn Thai in the beginning because it was like I felt, well, if I learn Thai, they're always going to want to talk with me. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm, I'm here to meditate. <laughs> you know, I'm not here to be social. You know, and, 
you know, to talk chit-chat with these Thai people. I mean, I'm here to get enlightened. You know, I'm here for a reason. I get this over with. I'm not tired of this long, enduring suffering. You know, let's cut through this crap, you know, and find liberation after six years like the Buddha, and then I can go back to America, and then I can be a normal person like everybody else, like I've always wanted to be. I always wanted to be a normal person like everybody else. I didn't want to be queer. I didn't want to be, you know, I didn't want to be a poor family. I didn't, you know, I wanted to be like everybody else. And so I figured if I got enlightened, (laughs) maybe I would be accepted. (laughs) Maybe I'd finally be accepted. And all the while, the Thai people, I mean, they were very accepting, you know, very accepting and loving and very kind. And, and they, you know, they, some of the Thai men, you know, they, they, they come up and they kind of hold your hand and they start rubbing your hand, you know. And I'd be like, oh, don't do that. <laughs> what, are you queer? <laughs> you know, so what is this? <laughs> what do you think I am? <laughs> And they're like, what's wrong? What's wrong? <laughs> I remember one time, one time um, we were, we were, um, once a week is Monk's Day, and we go into the hall for chanting, and you have to wear your robes in a certain manner for this particular day, ceremonial dress, and it takes some time to learn how to do it, the way to do it right. And even after, like, you know, four or five months, I'm still trying, one day it's in the morning, and we're lining up to go in, and I'm trying to get my robes right, and I was experiencing just a lot of frustration, and a lot of agitation, and anger, and this is hopeless, and what am I doing this for, and all that kind of thing, and so, you know, I'm just more and more frustrated, and two of them see me trying to do it, so they, two of them come over, and they say, you know, we want to help, we want to help, come on, you know, we'll do it, we'll help you, and I just got so upset, I just, took the robes and went, like that. And I said, don't help me. And I stomped up to my guti, and there was a gate, you know, at the guti. I took the gate, and I ripped the gate right off the hinges. And I stomped inside, and I shut the door. And they were like, is this guy crazy or what? You know? But that, you know, that's the kind of mindset. We all feel that way sometimes. I mean, life puts us into that place of, you know, feeling more and more boxed in and frustrated and angry and upset and not knowing, you know, how to deal with the next moment. And it just kicks into all that old mind conditioning, you know, of I can't do it right, I'm inadequate, I'm no good, I'll never be able to do it right, what's wrong with me? All the unworthiness stuff. And for some of us, we have we're here, we're here in this lifetime to heal unworthiness. I mean, that's a particular issue. That's something that we're here to learn about. You know, for somebody else, it might be they really need to learn patience. Well, if you need to learn patience, have children. They'll teach you about patience. You know, if you need to learn about generosity, you know, you'll find yourself in a situation either very rich or very poor, and you'll learn about generosity. If you need to learn about unworthiness, grow up in a family where, you know, mom and dad are not there for you, you're not getting your needs met, there's not a sense of nurturing and loving within the family, 
not because people don't want to love, but because they're so caught in their own fear and their own pain that they're not able to be there for you. And because they're not able to be there for you, the, the thought arises, there must be something wrong with me. Here I am in this family, and I feel so alone. And I'm, my needs are not being met. I need to be held. I need to be nurtured. I need for, for people to be there for me. I need to have a sense of belonging and a sense of connection with the mother and father. And when that's not there, the child says, says well, it must be because I'm not worthy. If I was worthy, I would be getting what I need. I would be getting this love which, which every child yearns for, which every child wants every child needs. That if, if I was worthy, I would be getting this. But in the absence of it, it's like, well, what's the conclusion for the child? I'm not worthy. There must be something wrong with me. It must be something that, I, that I've done. And that's why I'm not getting this love. And so with that, easily we turn this sense of something being wrong or that or the anger, the rage that we feel because our needs are not being met, we're not being nurtured that the way we need, we turn this back upon ourselves. And we say, see, it's because I'm bad. There's something wrong with me. If I was better, if I was good, whatever, then I would receive the love I need from my parents. And so sometimes the, the, the child wants to express this rage or anger, and the parents cannot allow that rage and anger because they can't deal with it. My father was having nervous breakdowns. You know, we were said, we were told, be quiet, be good. Don't get him excited. You get him excited and he's going to have a nervous breakdown and then he's going to go into the hospital. Then he's not going to be here. You don't want that to happen, right? Of course not. You don't want that to happen. So I became like the caretaker of my father making sure that he was okay and not getting excited. But in the process of that, having to stuff down a lot of my own rage and anger over not having my own needs met. You know? And so suppressing a lot of that rage and anger and the, and the intense feelings of unworthiness around all of that because there was a lot of fear that my needs were not going to be met because they were not being met in that kind of emotional context. And because they were not being met, um, the fear that is always there that they will never be met. And that fear just lingers on. And I see it for a lot of the folks who come in to talk about your life, to talk about your practice, where we carry this stuff right through. You know, right through middle age and on. Sometimes people don't awaken to some of this um, unworthiness, the sense of unworthiness, which is a little bit vaguer, perhaps until later on in their lives. You know, after they've had their children, the children leave home, and then there's this kind of vague sense of, you know, what's my life about? I have no meaning anymore. My children are, have left the nest. I have nobody to take care of. So what's my role? You know, just a, it doesn't, the sense of unworthiness doesn't happen until later on. And so we kind of get really lost in this myth of unworthiness. That, um, and it comes up, and life presents us, especially if it's an issue that we're needing to focus upon and look at and heal from. For some of us, it will, it will come up earlier in life, and then it will just keep presenting itself in more and more obvious ways for us to look at it, 
like any kind of issue that needs healing, will come up more to focus to begin to look at it and to understand what it is. And with unworthiness, it's a fear of rejection. It's a fear of not being good enough. It's the fear that I'm not lovable, that I'm not capable of love, that I'm not, that people will not love me, that I will not receive, there's something wrong with me, therefore I can't receive love. I can't give love and I can't receive love. That's really at the core of the unworthiness is this fear of not being able to love, to, re- to, to give love and to receive love because of the sense of unworthiness. And having to protect ourselves from when we're very young to feeling the deep pain in our heart because we're not getting what we need. And there's such anger and there's such rage inside because our needs are not being met. And so as a way of, it's when, when a child is very young, it can't let itself open to that pain. It's too, it's too scary. You know, it's this, the rage and the anger being so strong, and if, especially if it can't be expressed, what we do is we withdraw from our hearts. We create an armor in front of us, a wall in front of us that says, um, that says, that, you know, don't, I, there's, there's too, I, I don't want to feel this pain inside. Therefore, I will either ex- uh, relate to you as in expressing anger or expressing a sense of unworthiness, which is also a form of negativity. Some people, the way that they deal, the way they protect themselves is by becoming outwardly hostile and angry. It's a way of keeping people at distance and protecting themselves because of their fear and their pain. Another way is if we direct that negative, negativity, negativity inwards towards ourself in terms of unworthiness, that unworthiness also becomes a protection. You see, we can hide behind the unworthiness. We can say, see, I'm really no good, and you know, I'm really not worthwhile, and I'm not really lovable. You really can't love me. I don't, I don't love myself. How could you possibly love me? And so the unworthiness becomes a protection. And so we don't have to open our heart and become more vulnerable to life. We've been talking about making more intimate contact with life. And then we asked ourselves, well, what prevents making more deep, intimate contact with life? We asked that question last night. And, if, and, if, and what came up was fear. Because one person said that, that when you were in connection with other people and really made yourself vulnerable, then you felt a, a transformation in that moment, or you felt a very deep connection with life. But the thing that holds us back from making that kind of connection is the fear. Is the fear of being hurt. Is the fear of our needs not being met. Now, sometimes it's easier for us not to become vulnerable, not to allow ourselves to say, well, this is what I need. It's sometimes easier not to say that and not get what we want than to say, this is, really, this is what I need, and not have those needs met, responded to, and feel rejected. That it's just easier to, not, to, not to make yourself vulnerable or to ask in the first place. But then we don't get what we need. And we stay walled in 
in this place of fear and pain for a long, long, long time. Get walled in in this place of unworthiness, the sense of not being lovable, of not being able to love, of contempt of ourselves, where we remove ourselves from our own heart and then create these kinds of protective barriers, shields, so that we're not vulnerable to life. This is in part why we experience this deep separation in ourselves, in our lives. It's through the whole mechanism of the fear. You know, fear me. If we open to, if we open to the fear, let's take jealousy for an, for an, as an example. If, um, if I have a negative opinion about myself, and I see somebody who I regard, who I want to have what they have or be like they're like they are. And there's the desire to want something, to be something. And the fear that I'll never be able to measure up to that. And then the unworthiness arises and a sense of jealousy towards that person. Well, we've all had experiences like this, but it's especially strong for people who have a deep unworthiness, a strong sense of unworthiness, because you want to be worthy, and you see somebody else who you deem as being worthy, and you want to be like them, yet you can't, you know, because of the unworthiness inside of yourself, you, say, you become jealous of that person. So it manifests in some, in some different ways. It's coming to the point where we begin to realize that we have to just have more faith and trust in ourselves to take the risk of opening more deeply to the fear that is there, which is what we're doing in Vipassana meditation. Is we're taking that risk, having a little bit more trust and faith in ourselves that say, okay, I can allow myself to open to some of this fear that is behind the unworthiness or the inadequacy, or the anger, or the rage, or the jealousy, or the envy that we feel. To say, okay, I can allow myself to touch this with a little bit more mindfulness, with a little bit more spaciousness of heart, you know, and see where it takes me as I begin to work with a place that has been tightly contracted and closed inside of myself. We talk about wanting to be enlightened, and wanting to experience the absolute, and wanting to be finished with the samsaric cycle. But are we ready for that? How much of the groundwork have we done to be ready for enlightenment? I mean, it's nice to think that, okay, well, you know, I'll go to a retreat or I'll do a certain kind of practice and I'll get enlightened. But you have to do the groundwork first. 
There has to be a lot of work with, with looking at the fears that keep us closed off, that, keep, that keeps our heart closed off from truth. You can meet the greatest master in the world or receive the highest teachings, do the highest kind of meditation. But if there's fear in the heart, that's closing the heart off from life and from love and from truth. It's not going to penetrate through. I know people who, for example, go to visit Mother Mira in Germany, who is an avatar. People say that she's an avatar. She says she's an avatar, which is somebody who's come down to earth to channel light and love and to open people to you know, more, more love in their lives. And some people go and they have extraordinary experiences. Some people go and the experiences come after they meet her. Nothing really seems to happen while they're there, but afterwards there is a transformation, a change. Other people go and it's absolutely like you know, going to see the checkout clerk at the grocery store. I mean, nothing happens at all. You know? So what's the difference? Well, there could be lots of explanations for it. A particular connection with this being, or, um, you know, or perhaps the readiness of heart, the readiness of being as you come into contact with this person. And because you're ready and because you are who you are and they are who they are, there's a connection and an opening that takes place. So, the groundwork for this spiritual practice is extremely important and it means so much getting in touch with our hearts. So much. It's so important. To, and that's what, when we've looked at dependent origination, we've, and we've talked a lot about it too, and seeing how fear, anger, aversion, desire, wanting, how all of that plays into what we're being aware of. That when we begin to see something like fear, when we begin to see the arising of, of anger or unworthiness, that we see it as conditioned mind. We see it as old mind. And we ask ourselves, have I done anything to be unworthy right now? Is, I, am I doing anything that, right now that makes me unworthy? And we see that we're not doing anything that makes us unworthy right now. But rather, this unworthiness is the old mind, is the conditioned mind that is being brought into the present moment, and we are experiencing the unworthiness. It's a myth. It's the conditioned mind. The old mind is a myth. But we are so caught in the feelings of the fear and the negativity and the unworthiness that we don't see it for what it is, but rather we, we pull back through the fear and the unworthiness and stay in that place of using it as a shield, as a protection, or we just get lost in the nebulous feelings of the negativity, whatever it might be. So what we're doing with the practice is we're open, as it's arising, as it's coming up like everything that we look at in the context of the Vipassana practice, we ask ourselves, we see it as being conditioned mind, old mind. You know, are my needs being met right now? Yes, they're being met. I mean, I used to have fear around, for example, the dana. At, the end of, uh, at this point in the retreat, you know, it, hasn't, it wasn't that I was making a lot of money, 
teaching meditation retreats. This is not the kind of thing you go into if you want to make big bucks. You know, it's just not. And <laughs> nor being a manager of <laughs> a place like this. So, um, you know, if I had bills to pay, and of course I do like everybody else, at this point in the retreat I'd be, well, I wonder how much is going to be in the Donald basket. <laughs> you know, and is there going to be enough to pay the rent and do, you know, the taxes and do this and that. And I, my mind would get caught up in it, you know, and there would be fear around it. I could see myself, you know, kind of grasping and clinging to the Donna and how much was going to be there and would there be enough and the fear of that. And so I'd ask myself, do you have enough right now? You know, are your needs being met right now? Do you have enough to pay the rent, etc.? And I always did. I always had enough. Sometimes I'd just get by, but I'd always have enough. And then I'd say, okay, this is old mind. This is fear from the past. This is history. This is conditioned mind. It's not reality right now. So much of what we experience is exactly that way. It's not actually happening right now in a real sense. It has to do with before. But before is brought into now, and we believe it's true. And because we believe it's true, we live in a great illusion. And we get caught all in this fear, and all this separation, and all this unworthiness, and all this anger, and all this greed, and all of that causes suffering for ourselves. That's what we need to see. We need to see the unreality of that. The reality in the sense of, okay, you know, we are experiencing unworthiness or we're experiencing anger. We're not denying that in any way. That's what, you know, we are experiencing it, but how true is it? You know, on, on what is it based? On what is it created? On what fears, which are not rational, real fears, are we creating, or what my teacher used to call compounding, into this kind of suffering? And that's what we begin to look at and say, okay, my needs are being met right now. Just fear, fear, it's gone. You know? John needs to give a good Dharma talk, right? So I take notes and I think about the Dharma talk and I take a walk and I you know, hope the Dharma talk comes out okay. Fear, fear, you know, needing it to be good. If it's a good Dharma talk, then you'll like it, then you'll like me. That means I'm accepted. That means I'm worthy. That means everything's okay. Right? Then I have a place. I'm, you know, I, I should be here. I still have a job. Right? You know, I'll still be a Dharma teacher. All that. It's all based upon this need to be loved. And oftentimes the ability, inability just to love ourselves, just to accept ourselves for who we are, just as children of God, just as spirits, just as beings who are here because it's a nice place to hang out for, for 80 years, you know, to enjoy life, whatever. But we, it's so difficult to open and accept ourselves just for who we are because of all the fears inside that don't really allow that very easily. And so the fear is giving rise to these other things, to the anger and to the selfishness and to the unworthiness. You see it come up and you ask, okay, am, am I going to be hurt right now? No, I'm not going to be hurt. 
it believes. Are my needs being met right now? Yes, they're being met. Have I done anything that has made me unworthy? No, nothing that's made me unworthy. This is just old mind coming into the present moment. When you see it for what it is, poof, it's gone. And then we have the opportunity to rest in who we truly are. You know, in that space of just unconditional love and acceptance of just our being. You know, of not needing to protect ourselves and live out of that place of fear and aversion. You know, that we're, we just kind of contort ourselves and twist ourselves in all kinds of different positions just to be accepted by our family members or be accepted by society or be accepted by whatever we need to be accepted by, by to feel okay, that we don't need to do that that we can just rest in our true nature and who we are. And that becomes much easier to do when we're not getting caught and lost in that conditioned mind, in the old mind. Because that old mind is, would have us believe a million different things. I mean, you can see it in your meditation, where it takes you, where you go. I mean, it really becomes pretty outrageous at times, you know? And so, at a certain point, you, you say, you have to recognize it for what it is, you know, and say, okay, this is conditioned mind, this is old mind. And the next thing is to let it go. When you see it for what it is, the next thing is to let it go. No need to believe it anymore. No need to hold on to it as being self, as being I, as being me, as being real anymore. This is not an aversion to it. We're not talking about aversion to it or getting rid of it. We're seeing it for what it is. And then that next step is say, okay, old mind, bye, just let it go. You don't need to entertain it, be with it, believe in it, revel in it, fight with it, struggle with it anymore. You can just let it go. When you let it go, you come to that place of what we call pure awareness, of just the moment where there may not be anything arising, anything ceasing, where there may not be any image of yourself, where there may not be any identification, where there may not be any remnants of the old mind, of the conditioned mind, because it's not there. It's seen for what it is, as an illusion. And that's when we begin to rest more in our true nature, in the absolute, in reality. And it's, it's just by, it begins by just allowing yourself to rest in that place of pure awareness. Pure is just a word that we're adding onto the word of awareness. Just letting yourself rest in that place where you don't have to go anywhere, you don't have to do anything, and you don't have to be anybody. And really, that's what our heart wants. You know, when we get so caught up in life and our difficulties and being mom and being the worker and trying to be the loving parent or whatever it might be, and then sometimes we just kind of yearn inside of ourselves not to have to be anybody, go anywhere, or do anything, and just allow it all just to stop and just to be. And we have that opportunity to experience that in the context of this meditation practice. It will lead us deeper and deeper into that place of just allowing ourselves to be and to let go of that which has compounded and complexed our lives and created so much difficulty and suffering for ourselves. You know, that gradually the walls begin to come down. Those walls that we put in front of ourselves to protect ourselves for so long because we felt scared. 
You know, we've, we've always felt that our needs were not going to be met, that we weren't going to get what we needed, that we, you know, that we're not, that we weren't going to receive the love, that, you know, we're not going to be happy. All this is old myth. You know, and that's become that wall that's defended ourselves, and then slowly, one by one, we take the brick away. You know, take a brick away of unworthiness for the moment. And, because we don't believe in that unworthiness anymore. We take the brick away, and we put it down. And then, another time, we see ourselves as being jealous, and we see the jealousy as, you know, just this unworthy mind. You know, and take it and put it down. And another, you know, another moment, there's some more fear, and we see that fear and it dissolves, and that brick's taken away, until finally the wall begins to crumble, it begins to disappear, and we feel more connection with life, because we're not needing to protect ourselves out of that fear any longer. But it's that slow kind of evolving process. What would happen if you took a sledgehammer and you slammed the wall away? You know, all that that we protected ourselves for so long, and see, the fear, the unworthiness, it's been protection. It's served us. We've survived through that. When we were young, we needed that. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't have survived as a kid. We needed that protection of all of that. It was part, it's part of the samsara that we've needed in order to grow into a deeper understanding of nirvana. We needed that in the beginning. You know, it would be real violence to tear that away, you know, to, 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 to rip that down. You can't do that. And that's what I tried to do at the beginning of my practice. You know, it's pull, pull it all down. But I didn't realize the intensity of the fear that was there. And I was becoming more and more fearful. You know, more and more, more, and more, more, and more intense fears coming up because I was trying to rip what I, you know, what had been my protection for so long and that I hid behind and I was just, you know, tearing it all over the place. That's real violence to oneself. We can't do that. It's a much more gentle, loving, evolving kind of process that happens over time. You know, that prepares the ground for deeper illumination, for deeper understanding, for more penetrating kind of enlightenment experience. You can have an enlightenment experience early on in your practice. I've known people who have, very early on in practice. But then sometimes it just stops. After it, a person really hasn't changed. They've had an experience, but they really haven't fundamentally changed. You know, their life may be a mess. You know, their relative life could be an absolute mess. They've had an experience that you can brag about, you can talk about it, you can say, well, I've had an enlightenment experience, but how has it changed your life qualitatively? What's the difference? Are you more loving? Are you more compassionate? Are you more patient? Are you more generous as a result of it? That's what matters. Having an experience doesn't mean beans if it doesn't integrate into your life in some way in terms of changing it in a way that you're living in the world in a more harmonious and loving and a compassionate way. So although for some people in their practice it may feel that it's taking a while to prepare this ground for enlightenment in which you're, you find yourself becoming freer moment to moment, you know, you find that you are, there is more spaciousness. You find that, um, that you are more patient. 
with your children, you find that you are more generous, that you are more loving, you know, that you're, you're slowly, you know, beginning to open to some of the deeper fears inside, becoming less reactive, you know, letting go of be working effectively, very effectively with some of these deeper emotions that before would cause you to be, you know, very reactive and do things that were not so helpful to yourselves and other people. That you're, you know, you're beginning to, this is the ground for enlightenment. This is the place from which a deeper realization can take place. And that's very important. It's very, very important to have that kind of broad base in which you're, ha- you're working on every level of the Eightfold Path, right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, effort, mindfulness, concentration, that you know, that's, it's a kind of uh, preparation of the spiritual field that is very strong in its foundation, because a lot can be built from that, in the sense that um, the heart is well-prepared um, for a deeper realization and for opening more and more into love and compassion. I'd just like to end with reading you a story by Titnat Han. It's called Watering the Seeds in Ourselves. Once upon a time there was a river. The river is all of us. Finding her way among the hills forests and meadows, a beautiful river. The river began by being a joyful stream of water, a spring always dancing, always singing, running down from the top of the mountain. She was very young at the time, and as she came to the lowland, she slowed down. She was thinking of going to the ocean. As she grew up, she, looked, she learned to look beautiful, winding gracefully among the hills and meadows. One day, she noticed the clouds within herself, clouds of all sorts of colors and forms. She did nothing during these days but chase after clouds. She wanted to possess a cloud, to have one for herself alone. But clouds always float and travel in the sky. They do not retain their form. Sometimes they look like an overcoat, sometimes like a horse. Because of the nature of the impermanence within the clouds, the river suffered very much. Her pleasure, her joy, was chasing after clouds, one after another. You could imagine how hard it was for her. Despair, anger, and hatred filled the life of our river. One day, a strong wind came and chased away all the clouds in the sky. The sky became completely empty. Our river thought that life was not worth living, for there was no longer any clouds to chase after. She wanted to disappear from life. She wanted to commit suicide. If there are no clouds, why should I be alive? But how can a river commit suicide? That night, the river had the opportunity to go back to herself for the first time. She had been running for something outside of herself, namely clouds. She had never seen herself, never returned to herself. That night was the first opportunity for her to go back to herself. She could hear her own crying. 
because water always emits sounds, the flapping sounds against the banks of the river. That has always been true. Because she was able to listen to her own voice, that flapping sound of the water against the side of the bank, she discovered something quite important. She found out that clouds are nothing but water. Clouds come from water, and she was water within herself. She is nothing but water. Clouds are born from water and will return to water. That is what she found out. That insight made her stop her yearning for something else, else outside of herself. She realized that what she had been looking for is already in herself, is already herself. Looking at herself, she discovered her own roots, and she also saw the fruit of the present moment. Her roots are water, and her future will also be water. She saw that this is also the nature of clouds. The next morning, when the sun was in the sky, she discovered something wonderful. She saw the blue color of the sky for the first time. She had never seen it before. Now she knew that it had been there since her coming into being. Earlier, she had been interested only in clouds, and she was not yet capable of seeing the blue sky which is the symbol of peace. Clouds are impermanent, but the blue sky is stable. She has had the immense sky within her heart since the very beginning. Discovering this fact brought her a lot of peace and happiness. The immense sky is the home of all the clouds. As she perceived the wonderful blue color of the sky, she knew that her stability and her peace would never be lost again. That afternoon, all the clouds returned, but this time she didn't have the desire to possess one particular cloud. She could still see the beauty of each cloud, but she was able to welcome all the clouds. When a cloud came by, she would greet him or her with loving kindness. When that cloud wanted to go away, she would wave to him or her happily and with loving kindness. She realized that all the clouds are her. She didn't have to choose between the clouds and herself. Peace and harmony existed between her and the clouds. That evening, something wonderful happened. When she opened her heart completely to the blue sky, she received the image of the full moon. Beautiful, round, like a diamond ball within herself. She had never realized that she could receive such a beautiful image. In Chinese, there is a very beautiful poem. The fresh and beautiful moon of the Bodhisattva is traveling in the utmost empty sky. When the mind rivers of living beings are free, that image of the beautiful moon will reflect in each of us. This was the mind of the river at that moment. She received that image of that beautiful moon within her heart. Imagine that night, water, clouds, and moon took each other's hands and practiced walking meditation, <laughs> slowly, slowly to the ocean. When the river realized that she didn't have anything to look for, that everything was fully here in the present moment, she began to have peace and happiness. There is nothing for us to chase after 
There is nothing that we have to run after. Go back to yourself. Enjoy your breathing. Enjoy your smiling. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy your environment. I would like very much that our practice or our non-practice be centered on this kind of spirit. I, always, I love that story. It's a beautiful story. It's just that reminder. We get into this part of this search, this desire of wanting things to be other than the way that they are and so caught in all of that. And we lose sight that everything is here already. You know, when we can listen to ourselves, when uh, we come back to ourselves. And I think it's especially important, you know, as we're going back into the world, as we're going back to our home situations where, you know, the clouds come one by one. You know, all those different things, all the different responsibilities that we have. You know, all the different, you know, mind states that come up and thinking, oh, you know, it was so wonderful at Southern Dharma, even though all that pain was there, I'd still rather be back there, and I don't like what's happening for me right now, and let's have it different, and we get, those are all the clouds, and that's what we all get into, and reading the story, it's, a, it's always... It's all, it's all there already inside of ourselves. Everything, all that we are searching for, all that we are seeking, all that we are wanting, is already there. When we look outside of ourselves for it, we move away from it. It's here. It's right now. If we can trust and have faith and continue to look deeply. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.